0: Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics.
1: Today's gonna be your day. This is Wheeler's day, so we'll do whatever you wanna do today, all right?
2: (laughs) We should have more days like this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to uh, this episode of Yolitics first of february man it's already here i can't believe it and it know, is you know what that means what does that mean dry
2: january is over oh that does mean that i thought you were going to say something else but no. that does mean that as well
1: we went out to eat the other night and the uh, my wife is not participating any longer in dry january so she had a glass of red wine and the guy said are you sure you don't want anything i said no no i'm good thank you uh and then he came back again you sure you don't want anything like, no, Jeez. it's dry January, man. Take it easy, right? It's so, uh, giving you the
2: hard push there. Right. Yeah, it's the like, hard sell. Come on, come on.
1: You, so it's, it's over. I lost, what, six, seven pounds, and I, I'm a little nervous about whether I want to put any of that back on.
2: Hmm. Didn't you lose that, like, in the first
1: week, though? First, like, six days. It was like a pound a day, and then I, I leveled off, and I stopped.
2: And then you leveled off. Were you, were you sneaking some in after that? <laughs> <laughs> or did you replace it with some other vice? <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. I don't think
1: I did either, man. Not that I well, recollect. Um, but what a month! So
2: I'm I'm dying to know. Then after 31 days of of getting away from it, um, how do you feel?
1: I sleep better, and hmm. um, I feel great. I mean, hmm. you know, I, I, I lost like an inch in my waist, which is fantastic. I, I don't see. I, everyone says, "Oh, I, I don't. I don't really drink that much." I really don't drink that much. I, I drink. Uh, maybe a glass of wine at night, a couple nights a week and um, beer with you. And then, you know, when you, when you, you want to take me out on Thursday nights, which I can't often do um, <laughs> to have the harder stuff that I usually have to, have to, uh, you know,
2: yeah, to pol- really get up for politely that. Politely say
1: no for that.
2: Yeah. You know, Cause you know, I'm going to ask you to pay too. <laughs> um, so, so after 31 days, what do you have in here? So, what, what's, what's on the menu?
1: What's your policy on having, so I'm having uh, a Christmas gift from you. Oh, I like that. I'm having elf's blood and this thing's been staring at me forever. <laughs> this is Imperial imp, Imperial. My, my eyes are going now, too. That's the other thing that, that, that happens. Imperial sour <laughs> ale with raspberries, of course, is Wheeler picked it out with you raspberries, know. white chocolate, macadamia nuts and sugar cookies. So this wow. is a Christmas beer from ingenious brewing company. There's uh, a lot
2: going on in there.
1: A lot, dude. Uh, and this is from uh, this is from humble, Texas. Uh, just like Houston, you don't pronounce the H. It's, it's correct. Umble, which is Umble, I believe, is the home of Texaco. Way yes. back in the day, um, isn't it?
2: And and it's I think it was named after a a, a person, a man, and was, yeah. his and his last name was pronounced with the you know the short U there. It was not pronounced with an H. So people you know get upset about that, but it does not Ooh. have the H pronunciation. Just like Houston doesn't have the H, it has the long U. The Houston and Umble. So the you there. Uh, is, how did that first uh, sip go there? My goodness, man. <laughs> it, it, was there a lot going on like we
1: thought? Woo. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, lot of raspberries in there, and there's a lot of white chocolate in there. Um, hmm. Okay. It's, I it, had a lot of
2: fun picking that out.
1: I'll, I'll put the six pounds back on with this can right here, I'm sure, man. <laughs>
2: goodness. Welcome back to normal. Uh, I'm going to have a Shiner Trail Ale today. Have you had this? I haven't heard of that. It's interesting. Um, it's a, it's an ale, and it's combined with uh, chocolate, nuts, dried fruit, and uh, natural flavors. Uh, it's almost sounds like a, a trail mix. Trail mix in a can. Trail mix in a can with alcohol. What's so, up with
1: you picking these beers, man? I, I need to take you out and pick out some beers for you.
2: Yeah, you probably do. <laughs> mm, a lot going on in this one, too. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, part of the reason that I picked the trail mix one today is because we're talking about the trail, the trail to Texas. Um, and it is a well-beaten path uh, these days. We have talked about this before on the podcast, how people just keep on coming to Texas. And uh, Jason, I always remember that meme uh, that I saw several years back, and it was an Austin City Limits sign. You've probably seen this by now. And it just says, Austin City Limits, population full. Like, in other words, don't come. We've got enough. Leave us alone. Uh, But people just keep on making the journey here uh, and it's uh, it's stacking up. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, I knew that we were going to record this today. And just yesterday I saw that uh, there was this thing that came across one of the wires uh, and it's from a place called Dwellix. I've never heard of them, Uh, Hmm. but it's a they call themselves the authority in U.S. city data and personalized advice on where to live. And they unveiled their 2022 report called the top 100 best cities to work remote in 2022, because, you know, it's never been more wide open than it is now, because a lot of these companies have said, you know, you don't have to come into the office so you can go, you know, kind of live wherever this report. You know, they look at all kinds of different things, including cost of living, and they found that Texas exceeds all other states with seven of the top 20 positions on their list and 17 of the top 50. So they're telling the whole country like go to Texas. That's where it's at. It's 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 utopia. It's perfect. If you can work far away, go do that.
1: My wife is from California and she was out there the other day last weekend and she was talking to relatives and they were all she's already had some family move here and they were all saying, oh, my gosh, is Texas really as good as we've heard? They're all asking about that. So I thought that was fascinating. But you know, when we know when we have these conversations and when reporters go out and start putting these stories together, they, they always go find, uh, you know, the, the experts who can, uh, you know, zoom out and, and, and really give a, a wider look about this. What's going on in Texas? Why people move here? And you get the, the general things. But today we have a woman on the line named Megan Lovelace. She and her husband, Jason, and their three kids moved down to the Hill Country, down to Dripping Springs. Uh, which is on the other side of Austin, the west side of Austin there, just about the same time the pandemic began.
2: Uh, So you're just outside of Austin now, uh, living there in Dripping Springs, but still working, your husband is, uh, for someone way out on the East Coast.
0: Yes. So we had been in New Jersey in specifically Montclair, which is Essex County. A lot of people consider that just a Manhattan suburb. So we were there for almost seven years and work brought us over in that direction. We were in Chicago before that for about 12. So we've done the migration more than once. Um, yes. And we loved New York. We loved New Jersey. There were a few things that pulled us down. One, we had been to Austin several times. So Jason went to UT um, mm-hmm. for school and we had come down. We have friends down here and um, his parents are still in Dallas area. So we had been... This was kind of our spring break destination when it got cold up north and we were looking for some sunshine. So we've been down to visit many times, um, but it's it was a kind of a covid sparked move. So it's something we had considered for several years. um, But the covid situation obviously opened up a window that made it very easy for us to do. It. So
1: Megan, your your husband is is telecommuting, I guess, right? It, it,
0: he wait, is. is he in the other room? Yeah.
1: What's he doing right now? Where is he?
0: He's actually at a doctor's appointment. Ah. <laughs> Otherwise, I would totally pull well, him in. But So he works for ADP, um, which mm-hmm. is headquartered in Roseland, New Jersey, but he works for the Manhattan office. So ADP several years ago, which is what brought us out there, open an innovation tech lab um, and they had asked him to come out. So we had been out there for that kind of committed to three years and kind of waited to see how we liked it um, and ended up staying for almost seven, but he is still tethered to the New York office very much. So,
2: well, I just want to thank you for doing this instead of him doing this (laughs) because uh, two Jason's on here is already too many. (laughs) Uh, Three might've just been way too
0: much. No, nope. uh, so, other Jasons.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so now you all uh, made this move, and so we we've heard a lot about the the Great Resignation. Uh, this is part of the same thing, though, where we keep hearing about this quote unquote Great Migration, too, because uh, because of the you know the pandemic, so many people have been able to work from home and work remotely, and this has opened up a possibility for so many people to live a life that they never dreamed of, where they're working for somebody across the country, but living in a place that is relatively less expensive. Uh, Has it really gone that way, uh, have you found, since you moved to Texas? Is it, in fact, so much cheaper to live here like we've always liked to brag it is? So
0: it is absolutely not. (laughs) New Jersey has some of the highest property taxes in the country. So we came from a very highly taxed state. The exception being we don't have some sales tax, but that's really the only trade-off. And as any move in any place you live, you will have trade-offs. We tried to do a lot of homework just because this is something we had been considering for a couple of years. So it wasn't a total shock, but you never really know cost of living until you get there and you're on the ground. And I remember the first couple of times we went to the grocery store, um, Mm. you know, just expecting that coming from just outside Manhattan, anything had to be cheaper (laughs) than where (laughs) we were. And it it was just not true. So, Mm. I would say general cost of living is at least as high as, you know, what you would consider an area just outside New York. Wow, that's stunning. Yeah. Groceries, um, anything from that to dry cleaning is shockingly expensive. Mm. Um, obviously, we're not used to being in our cars so much. So mm. we're putting on way more miles on, on our cars. And our cars are not necessarily what we would have chosen for <laughs> the extensive mileage we're putting on down here versus just mm-hmm. kind of around town travel up north. Um, gas prices are are pretty equivalent. There's some refineries near New Jersey so we' we're we weren't at a peak price. Um, but I would also say we're not the most common migration path. I would uh, most of the people I have met down here are certainly coming from the West Coast, which I was actually surprised about. I figured with this being such a big tech area, that that would be a natural, pretty consistent migration pattern. And I think Mm -hmm. what's happening from New York is more, they're just traveling straight down East coast. That's, that's a Mm -hmm. guess, but just from kind of qualitative information, you know, the destinations are more likely to be Carolinas or Florida and not as Mm -hmm. many are coming out to Austin. Um, It is, overwhelmingly California, Washington, Oregon-based.
1: Megan, what do you tell Texas lawmakers who love to get out there and brag, saying Texas is open for business, we're the cheapest place in the country, and you know the the results show that people are moving down here like you guys did, whether it's from the East Coast or West Coast, West Coast being primary uh, there, but if gas and groceries and dry cleaning and and everyday life is as expensive as it is in other places, is the move really worth it?
0: I think it really depends pretty specifically where you're moving. So we are about 20 miles, about a 25 minute drive West of Austin. And I mean, I can tell you at least from a housing cost perspective, even a year ago, those numbers looked significantly different. So, um, I know most of the tech boom around us is happening to the north of Austin. And we're, you know, we're, we're kind of more in a rural area here in Dripping Springs. But I think it's really specific to the, the area that you're moving, certainly in the areas that are the up and coming, that have the good schools, you know, all the typical things that families yeah. are looking for, the good schools, the jobs nearby, the short commute, um, there are you're not going to find cost savings. You know you're going to find other trade offs, like I talked about. So the things that we were looking for, and we are probably net net still saving. Um, you know the no sit sa- no state income tax certainly helps,
2: yeah.
0: um, especially because we were paying. You know New Jersey, New York reciprocity taxes. And those are probably pretty steep. So we, we save a little bit there. We're certainly not saving on property taxes. We're certainly not saving on everyday expenses. And I would say overall transportation costs were probably paying more, even though we were paying, you know, things like commuting uh, to train, commuting um, bus sometimes um, and, and just kind of everyday car, but you know, it's, it's so dependent on where specifically you're moving. And like, you know, like any towns and cities that are growing, the the build kind of keeps getting pushed out further and further. And Mm -hmm. the, the prices, you know, you have people like us who can afford to come out and to pay the same prices for property tax. And you have people from California who can do the same. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, it, it is going to push people closer and, uh, sorry, farther and farther out from city centers, mm-hmm. similar to what happened in Dallas, where you've got Plano was kind of maxed out with development. And so that pushes it north. And
1: but, 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 so Meg, are you you're, glad you made the move though?
0: I am. Um, so one of the, the big factors in wanting to move for me was weather. So I've lived in the north my whole life. <laughs> My path is Seattle to Buffalo, New York to Columbus, Ohio to Chicago. Oh,
2: <laughs> Wait, but then you had to go through February of last year here in I Texas. I did. I didn't brought you? it with us. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're the one to blame. Yeah. Speaking of y'all being the ones to blame, I'm sure that you've heard this from people saying, Uh, It's because of people like you who keep moving in and you've got these great paying jobs on one of the coasts. That's why it's all going up. But it's just, it's part of what Texas is now. It's this sort of mashup.
0: It is. I mean, you have so many ranches that people have been sitting on for generations, really. And, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on who you're talking to, money talks. So when those people who have had land for, Honestly, generational um, mm-hmm. have the opportunity to really cash out. They're going to sell, and you've got developers who are anxious to you know go to the next land and builders. Same. So it, when I mean it's it's simple economic supply and demand are really driving that. There's a there's a mm-hmm. desire to be here. There's job creation here. There's good weather good schools in a lot of areas and it's kind of the perfect storm, you know, going back to your point of being able to be mobile. We've had this kind of on the back burner for at least three years. Mm -hmm. And it was a consideration before we moved to New Jersey. It's really kind of where we wanted to go, but it just, the chips didn't fall in that way. So we finally got down here, but we wouldn't have really been able to pull the trigger if it weren't for the fact that we had that flexibility to do it. And that came with a little bit of, you know, arm wrestling. It was not ADP, Jason's company, was not in the business, especially at that point and so early on in COVID, of letting everyone just go wherever they wanted. There are traditionally, um, An office company; they like employees to be there. There's not really a culture of people working from home, other than maybe in a sales capacity. So, there was a little bit of of you know back and forth negotiating to have that flexibility granted, and we we were grateful for that. So that's you know that's really. But tossing tossing the cards up and and letting them fall, it's super interesting to see the paths that different people pick. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think the job creation and where those opportunities are is really, I mean, that's where people are going.
1: Mm. Something you mentioned living in Seattle and I think a couple other places and then uh, New Jersey as well, too. The politics in Texas is completely different from the places you've lived. You have lived in Uh, at least several of them, Democratic strongholds, Republicans rule Texas down here. I think I can use that word, rule Texas, because they do in in every uh, state office. What are the biggest differences you have seen, if any?
0: So I am not used to being in such a conservative area. And I think my perception, again, you know, you can only get a feel for something, and then when you're on the ground, it's you know it's very different than what you might have assumed from reading articles or talking to people locally. Um, this is the most conservative place that I've lived in a long time, and it's a little bit of a shock for me, personally, without really revealing too much of my political background. But um, I would say, other than the visual cues, it's not obvious um, on a personal-to-person basis what anyone's specific affiliation is. Um, there's a lot more in-your-face conservatism, I would say, than up north. And understanding New Jersey as a very mixed state, even though overall it tends to lean blue, there are really strong Republican pockets. So Montclair, where I was, was a very much a blue bubble and right next door, we had very strong red bubbles. So, I'm, oh, I mean, I have been aware of it. I am but, somewhat kind of in and out of politics stuff, but it's.
1: How well? It's, well uh, how, let me ask you this: How do you? Uh, what what's kind of? What are the, the the factors out there? What what's kind of in your face that would uh, that, that that you you know saw down here? That's like, oh wow, we are in a conservative state.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, culturally there, there are a lot of different visual cues overall. So I'm not used to seeing so many pickups. (laughs) I mean, a lot of electric vehicles. (laughs) Um, And so that's, there's a lot, especially in dripping, you know, where it's a little more rural than closer in, in Austin, you see a lot of pickups and the pickups are generally decked out in some kind of flag or bumper sticker Um, You've Mm -hmm. got a lot of political signage as you would anywhere, Um, but you have, it's a lot of individuals wearing things that are indicative of which way they lean. So hats and Mm t-shirts, and it's pretty prevalent down here. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: That being said, I know we are in a very, especially Dripping Springs, we're in a very mixed area. There's a lot of influx of people from democratic pockets um certainly austin leans more blue but out in dripping it's it's pretty much mixed you have people that are definitely conservative uh, you know especially those who have been here a while and it's interesting that kind of layer of politics so not just democratic and republican but you also especially in dripping have the politics of those who have been here and are opposed to change and those who are coming in and obviously inherently embrace change and layering those two together is an interesting cross section of the country. <laughs> yeah,
2: that, that is interesting, uh, everything that you're saying there. And, and I think it's an interesting vein that uh, Whiteley is exploring here because, you know, a lot of people have talked about Texas changing and Democrats, of course, have been hoping for this uh, for a generation now. Uh, that a lot of these people who are coming in from the outside might actually start to change uh, the, the politics here in this state and at least make it uh, more competitive. So, you know, that that remains to be seen. Uh, I am curious because you talked about how, you know, Texas has been this job creating engine. Um, and, uh, you know, your husband is still wor- working for an, an outfit that's, you know, attached to the northeast. Um If he were to, let's say, switch jobs to a job that's here, based here in Texas, uh, would you imagine that he would probably be in for quite a pay cut? Because, you know, that's we may not be cheaper uh, to live in than the rest of the country, but it seems like our wages sometimes don't keep up with what's happening on the coast.
0: So I think depending on the company and how good they are at being aware of cost of living, I know when we did the move from Chicago to New Jersey, You know, there was a process of educating even themselves from within because we were kind of a a one-time deal. But knowing what is happening now, I think a lot of HR groups are doing their due diligence and understanding. um, And also, they take feedback from people. You know, when we moved and we really felt that the cost of living was significantly different and more so than they were expressing, you know, they take feedback from employees when if they're if they're you know doing what they should be doing you know and understanding because again you're here you're living it you can give some real life examples so you know i i can't speak overall for what companies are and are not doing but i will say i think that there is a, a pretty good working knowledge at least within jason's company because he does a lot of hiring and is kind of, um, you know, at least has a good working awareness of people coming and going to different cities. They've got um, employees in a lot of different um, states. So I would say probably most HR company and most HR divisions of companies are aware of how expensive it's getting here. And at least open to the feedback that it really is expensive. I mean, it
2: that is intriguing. So you guys have been able to kind of send back word that, hey, we're out here on the Western front and it <laughs> is not inexpensive. If you're looking to poach more talent from here uh, who live here, you might want to pay a little more.
0: And I think it really depends on the the section of work that you're doing. So with Jason being in technology, ADP is for the most part following the big leaders in the, in the industry so what Google and Amazon do has a trickle down effect and when they're not cutting salaries and when they are you know considering cost of living and and making it easy for people to work remotely and to make those choices it generally follows suit on down the line. I think if they were not leading the way in some of those decisions that they're making, ADP wouldn't be doing, you know, they wouldn't have let Jason do what he's doing. They'd probably be back in the office somewhat. And it it really is incumbent on those those big tech leaders to kind of set the stage for what the standard is in the industry. And everyone else tends to fall in line because in order to compete for talent, you really have to have a an on par offering from others that, you know, are offering something that is is very beneficial and people have wanted this in the industry. um, I think for a while, I think there's been a push for an option, a partial work from home option um, in many industries, but I think especially tech where you have developers who could really be anywhere. It doesn't have to be, Mm an in-office setting. So it's been an interesting hmm. an interesting look from a tech perspective because I don't think probably the same um, flexibility and advantages are, are awarded to people in all industries. Hmm. But technology has been very kind to its employees.
1: Megan, I missed it. Where are you from again? You're the Northeast somewhere?
0: So I grew up mostly in Ohio. Ohio. So- that's where well, I say I'm from. Well,
1: I'm not from Texas. I've been here for twenty something years. I'm from Tennessee, like all the original Texans were, anyways. Uh, as I, <laughs> he fits as, as in I any point chance out to Wheeler all the time, since he's from uh, uh, Harris County, I, I believe. Um, but you know what, Galveston, uh, Galveston County, County, Texas City, I believe, is that right? Well, I I do want to compliment you on on dropping the word springs and just calling it dripping. You're sounding a lot more local. I love that. Uh, (laughs) With that, Megan, you need to work on your twang a tad. I can still hear like north of the Mason Dixon, but dripping makes you, you know, gives you a lot of street cred. So uh, that's good. Now, if you take the G off the end of it, you're really
2: Texas then. Have have you
1: been out to Deep Eddy yet? The the, uh, vodka place out there off the main highway?
0: We are not drinkers, but we... Have been out to a lot of the, the um, like tree oaks oh, and, yeah. and those around town. Uh, I mm-hmm. mean, it's they're amazing places to go with families right. or friends because it's. I mean, they are open year round. It's the most amazing thing. You can go. It's sprawling land to just run around. They're gorgeous oak trees. Mm-hmm. It's just a really picturesque setting, and we've gone. Farther afield, you know, to Johnson City and Fredericksburg mm-hmm. and San Marcos and down to San Antonio. So we've spread our wings a little bit, but yeah, I don't know if I'm ever gonna have the y'all. I, well,
2: here, here, here's I, one I,
0: that, <laughs> that was pretty my good. Body, I struggle. <laughs> you know there. the name of a podcast, right? Yes. Y'all <laughs> ticks,
1: but but I think they call it San Marcos, not San Marcos, right? Well, okay,
0: yes. so I've Marcus. had to learn a few of those Marcus. where I I called it. Um, so I speak a little bit of Spanish. I took through high school, so I called it Blanco.
2: Oh, and geez. Oh, yeah.
0: I did something. You have to
2: know. assume oh, yeah. you have to assume that if you're in Texas, it is going to be mispronounced. So whatever it looks like, say it wrong oh, and awesome. you'll be I right. Was
0: told if you're white saying it in a Spanish accent, that is. not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: hey, it was a good effort. Yeah, so it it was it a good effort. I did this Buda so I'm sorry oh Buda (laughs) Buda nope see that's what it looks like you have gotta mispronounce (laughs) it and then you'll be right yeah welcome welcome to Texas uh sorry uh, sorry it's not as inexpensive as advertised uh because we've found that as well even those of us who've been here for quite a while uh but uh thanks for taking the time and uh welcome to the state even though you're a year and a half in now so you're you know you're kind of an old timer now compared to a lot of very people.
0: good to be here. Thank you guys for having me on today. And we really love the area. We're excited to to see more of it. So
2: what I love there is dripping, just calling it dripping. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to start doing that. I, I just need to move to a place that has two words, <laughs> you know. and uh but she you know she's almost there she can just lose that g at the end she's there
1: she she gets a lot of points for for dropping springs i mean just dripping just i I, I live in dripping y'all you'd have to know what she's talking about but her accent will get there i I think you know that's going to be the the trouble she's going to have when she goes to the feed store down there in dripping. (laughs) (laughs) to try to get some uh, pinion wood or or whatever she needs, some deer corn,
2: you know? You know, and I'll say this, um, I'm glad that she's starting to like it here. And, you know, she kind of touched on this too, that, you know, you kind of have to learn to like it because, you know, what are you going to do? Put the house up for sale and then try to move to another little area around here. We all know what the real estate has been like. It's been nuts. And, you know, they just like so many people say, there's no way I could move here now if I hadn't moved here just, like you know, a year and a half ago because the prices have exploded. Right. Uh, interesting thing there. Again, I just noticed, I knew we were going to record this. And I saw this report come out that in 2021 alone, uh, guess how much home values just as a total figure went up in Texas? What would you guess? Per- percentage or, or? No, just a, a, a monetary, just like a big pile of cash. How much do you think houses in Texas when you're going to overguess this and it's going to seem underwhelming?
1: It's like the price is right. I don't want to go over.
2: <laughs> yeah. But I right.
1: want to qualify for a chance. Don't to say one dollar. Yeah. But don't say one dollar. I'm going to say six thousand four hundred and twenty one dollars.
2: Okay, I don't know if that's I don't know what it is per house. Is I should this a have trick question? That, yeah, the total ha- overall figure. Uh, the total overall figure was that houses in Texas went up by five hundred and six billion dollars in one year. Um, wow! And when you consider and and you know this report lays out that Texas houses are worth about two point six trillion. Uh, and so that's really that's roughly a fifth of that uh, value in just one year. That just tells you how much. Prices here have exploded and values have exploded here. So I'm glad that they've gotten settled in there and dripping uh, because they're sitting on they're, they're sitting on a big investment there. And, you know, people are
1: my wife does interior design and people are, are you know, when they're finding a house or looking for a house, they want now the home office. They want a study or an extra bedroom. They can turn into an office uh, because, mm-hmm. you know, I saw a headline not too long ago. It says return to office is dead. Who knows yeah. what happens with this Omicron thing? This has been going on for, for our job at the Yaltax World Headquarters uh, right here in Texas. <laughs> you know, we, we've had several several of these uh, iterations where come back to office. No, don't come back to office. Um, so, you know, th- now that's that, an uh, issue.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, now that so many of the you know offices are sitting vacant because people aren't using them, we really should set up a world headquarters. Maybe we can get a good deal on that. Uh, so we've been talking with, you know, you mentioned at the top here, uh, yeah. you know, experts and so forth. And we picked a good one here to kind of go a little bit further into this. And she is a UT, University of Texas, sociology professor. Her name is Jennifer Glass, and she has been looking at this stuff for a long time, even before the pandemic arrived. Uh, she really kind of, you know, her expertise is on like work and family issues, telecommuting and labor practices. I mean, she was in all of these different spaces, as you like to say, Jason. Uh, she was in all of these different spaces long before. A lot of people really started talking about it and focusing on it in the pandemic.
1: I hope that uh, Dr. Glass here uh, on the line with us can really get into the nuance of this, because there is a lot um, when we look at it, uh, whether we are going to go back to office, whether people are going to work in their homes like uh, Megan and her husband, Jason, are doing there in dripping. Uh, So that's one of the things I I really hope you can tell us, Dr. Glass.
2: Let's talk a little bit about this. It seems like work has just changed so much for so many people uh, in this pandemic. I know you've written like 60 articles and books. Uh, You've got to be getting ideas for, you know, a whole series of books just from what we're going through right now.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. That, that's why I'm here, actually, at the Russell Sage Foundation. You know, they're a they're a book publishing company, essentially, and uh, so they invite scholars here, and then they get first dibs on the manuscripts that come out of it. So, but but that manuscript is really about something that was percolating before COVID, and um, so I'm in the middle of this project, and then COVID emerges, and now I'm in a COVID project as well. But just to highlight some of the big changes from COVID, I think, from my perspective, the biggest is that people had to, for the first time, think about their working conditions in terms of their own personal safety. And it wasn't just people who are loggers or operating heavy machinery or farm equipment are the things that we normally think of as potentially causing us harm. Now it's the person standing next to you on the factory floor. Now it's a supervisor or a colleague who refuses to get vaccinated or wear a mask. And so now the calculus of how much risk you're willing to bring into your life, into your family's life, into your elder members, and you know maybe vulnerable children in your family, how much are you willing to risk? in order to stay on this job. And so it really changed the calculus for a lot of people because now for the first time, it's not about um, money or peace of mind or working conditions. It's now about life and death potentially. And those are stakes that ordinarily we don't face other than Hmm. perhaps the military, right? right. You're not basically saying, yeah, go ahead, risk my life in order to accomplish this job task. And I think that really made people stop and think about a lot of things. So there's that number one, if you were an essential worker and you had to continue working, if you wanted to keep your job, there were those kinds of concerns. If you worked for an employer who uh, was, say, less than accommodating for your own personal needs, that became an issue that maybe you didn't have before. And then finally, there are legions and legions of affluent white collar workers who got sent home. And so they're not the total labor force by any means. They're a solid, you know, 40% chunk. They're not 60%. They're that other 40% chunk. But to have 40% of workers approximately being able to accomplish most of their job tasks from home and meetings on Zoom, that's a technological revelation; those were the things that most bosses resisted and resisted mm-hmm. mightily pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. And uh, even my own colleagues, I can remember resistance to having meetings on Zoom. I can remember a big methodological discussion about whether we should interview people over uh, it was Skype back then, not Zoom, but whether we should be interviewing people using these technologies rather than face-to-face, and would we be losing information? So, an awful lot of things that we were worried about, we can't worry about anymore. It's already Mm -hmm. here. It's already happened. And this huge technological innovation, which seemed a little bit futuristic maybe 20 years ago, is now going to be very, very difficult Mm -hmm. to put back in the Mm -hmm. box, you know? So, now workers have had a taste. They understand what it's like to not have to fight traffic for 35 Mm -hmm. minutes on your way to work. They understand what it's like to not have to spend 20% of your income on work clothes. They understand how much more productive they can be if they're at home without children or spouses bothering them. So this is not everybody. But if you had a home office and you have a dedicated space, um, the number of interruptions goes down. So the concerns about innovation and productivity and all the excuses that we were being, mm-hmm. ge- being given before now kind of fall on their faces because now we've had two years where most businesses have had to turn to some kind of at-home telecommuting for at least some of their employees. And guess what? The world didn't fall apart.
2: That's so true.
3: So I've talked to I've talked to three workers just this past week, all of whom are thinking of quitting their jobs because their employers are starting to mandate returns to the mm-hmm. office full time. Three. That's just I'm just one person talking to just people. So that, that leads.
1: Had, well, let me ask you this, Professor Glass. That leads in, into a question I have here, too. I, I saw a story on a text chain with a couple of buddies of mine. They, they They texted a story from NBC News recently, and the title of it, the headline was, Full return to office is dead, experts say, and remote is only growing. I would like to think that I don't have to go back to the office and I can just talk to Wheeler here on on Zoom all the time (laughs) Uh, instead of having to see him all the time. But is that true? Um, Is full return to to work dead because of of the reasons you just stated
3: I think we'll see. Uh, so, I'm not very much of a futurist. Uh, before the pandemic, I was a big, big supporter of telework, and I was quite commonly called in to consult for different organizations or companies. And I would always tell them the same thing, which is that full-time telecommuting is not a good idea, that the hybrid model is what you should be shooting for. Because it is true that you do lose camaraderie. You do lose uh uh, more in-depth understanding of what your coworkers are doing and what their personal situations are and how they're feeling, so I do think there's a role for being in person in the office for part of the week. But I think the idea that you're going to go, you know, mm. eight to six yes. Monday through Saturday at the office, yeah, yeah I think that's if dead. you try that right
2: dead. now. By the way, and and I have done that. It feels like the longest day of all time. If you've been on a hybrid schedule. <laughs> To go and sit there all day, it feels like you've spent days there. Uh, I'm curious, just because Mm -hmm. you are a sociologist and, uh, you know, so you study things, you see things, I think, from a a wider view than, you know, most of us tend to look at. We've talked a lot about migration. Uh, You know, everybody keeps saying great resignation, great resignation. A lot of people have left their jobs, but a lot of people have left their jobs and had the freedom or, or they've stayed with their jobs and they're working remotely And they have the freedom for the first time, maybe in their lives, to move somewhere else while they're still employed. We're going to see some real changes come out of that society-wise, aren't we, and state-wise. I mean, we're seeing people move here from other places who never would have been able to do that.
3: That's right. And it solves a number of problems. Um, one of the problems is, of course, if you have a dual earner family and someone has a great opportunity for a, a company that's in a different part of the country, this gives you the opportunity to maybe not uprooting your whole family and taking your kids out of school and everything else, that you can actually see career growth that's not geographically limited, that you can hang on to talent if they need to locate someplace else. So in some ways, it's going to be good for workers and it's also going to be good for management. Um, I think that, other, other kinds of occupations are more tied geographically. And so, for those, I, I think that you know we can't claim that this 40% of the labor force is the entire labor force. It's not. And there are going to be a lot of jobs where it's just not possible to have that degree of telecommuting. But you're right. A lot of people move to the suburbs. Uh, a lot of people doubled up with uh, other relatives during COVID in different geographic places, and they found out that they could do their work just fine. So, that's going to be the pressure. But I do think even pre-COVID, there were difficulties with workers who were permanently off-site if they weren't traveling regularly. So, if they're traveling regularly, not an issue. Again, you check in with the home office. You can find out what's going on. You're not disconnected from the larger organization. But I've always been a big fan, like I said, of these more hybrid arrangements where you're not just sending off someone into the boonies and disconnecting them from training opportunities, from the kinds of interpersonal connections that you need for promotion opportunities, um, or to solidify client relationships. So, you just want to be careful about letting people satellite off into a different state or even a different country. Some jobs are perfect for that. So, this isn't about all jobs. But not all jobs can be configured that way. I think in the tech industry, you see more of this than you do in other fields, because any kind of field where much of the work is solitary, you're going to be able to let that worker live wherever they want to live. But for things that require a lot of coordination and control, let me tell you, I'm on a team right now that spans three different time zones. And just Mm. finding a time when everybody can meet ends up (laughs) being a little bit of a a deal.
1: Professor, let me ask you this. The um, health experts are, are saying that there's a possibility that with Omicron not being as, as deadly as the other variants as Delta and, and the original mm-hmm. uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2, isn't that what they call it? The the, uh, the original, yeah, the original that the pandemic might be winding down. And I'm curious if it winds down and turns into an endemic like the flu. Um, does that mean the Great Migration ends? Does that mean that, that uh, you know, we might not see as many people moving to Texas as, uh, as in the past?
3: You know, people were moving to Texas before COVID. So I don't think the longer term trend is probably going to change a whole heck of a lot. I think the housing pressures in other parts of the country were part of what made us look good. And that's disappearing. I can tell you right now that uh, I know in Dallas and in Austin, it's getting really hard to find a place and we're starting to look a lot more like California and New York than we probably want to. Uh, So that advantage is probably gonna to start to trickle away. Um, the faster that trickles away, I think the, the, the slower that influx is gonna become. Um, but having said that, I will say that part of what's going on with the great migration is also a demographic shift and who's in our population. So we keep forgetting that, that some of these things were going to happen anyway. And one of that is that we, we, we might as well call it the mm-hmm. great retirement because the largest uh, cohort in history is now retiring. And their children, which are now the largest cohort in the American population, we love to call them millennials, but really they're just the children mm-hmm. of the baby boom. And they are the largest group demographic group in the population right now. They have dramatically postponed marriage and children. And so, some of the things that are happening, the shift away from cities uh, into the suburbs is in part going to happen anyway because of this pent-up demand for, for marriage and children. It's going to happen eventually. It's just happening later for this mm-hmm. generation. And so, um, a, a lot of the business press in particular wants to write as if this is a cataclysmic thing that's happening. And really what it is, is an acceleration of things that were going to happen anyway. But mm-hmm. COVID is kind of push them. Yeah. A lot of people decided to
2: just go ahead Uh, and retire now because it was too much of a risk. Maybe they were, you know, maybe planning to hold on for a few more years, but they just felt that it was too much of a risk or they just kind of liked being at home after they spent a little time at home and thought, why do I want to go back? You even, didn't you even kind of think about retirement during COVID?
3: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When I started to think about going back, really it was the Mm. online teaching of hundreds of students at a time. The anonymity and the the lack of opportunity to engage, um, because we really didn't change our mm-hmm. modes of instruction, we or class sizes or anything. We just said now do it all online, and I just remember thinking, you know, do I really want to do this for the mm-hmm. next five years, or if this hangs around, is you know is now the time to hang up? Um, so I, I think everybody kind of had that moment. If they were a baby boomer, it's kind of like hmm. Well, I was planning on this, but given circumstances, um, what's the harm in accelerating this for you know maybe two or three years? So that that's And that's one of the
2: things. And that's one of the things that you were talking about. You know, when we have disadvantages to being remote, and I, I suppose in your profession, that is one of the disadvantages is is being online and sort of detached like that. Uh, just to bring that around to most people who are working from home or working remotely, maybe working in a different state than they uh, you know than they live in. Uh, do you think that you get passed up for opportunities and promotions if you're not there?
3: I think that's the pattern of the past. It's mm. clearly the pattern of the past where FaceTime meant everything. And productivity was not measured by actual accomplishment. It was measured by how often I see your face. Yes, and uh, that that turned out to not be such a great management practice. But it was something that was readily available. It's a readily available metric, right? And doing these kinds of more in-depth productivity analyses. Oh my gosh, if you're a busy manager, you know that takes a lot of time and energy that you don't want to spend. So that was the shorthand. Um, I think now there's much more of a focus on doing what my profession has always done, right? Because I'm in one of those professions where it's really hard to measure productivity. So we were always told to file annual activity reports where we were accountable for what we did. We had in measurable publications and dollars raised, you know, metrics to, to say what we had done, students who had been mentored or graduated, whatever. And I think more businesses are trying to do that. They're trying to look at metrics other than FaceTime, that can help them gauge the performance of especially work teams that are working offsite. So mm-hmm. we'll see where that goes, but it was kind of a necessary corrective anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a system that definitely handicapped people who had families and people who wanted to be involved with their communities, with their children, uh, with their faith communities, whatever. Yeah. So yeah. FaceTime is a bad metric. It's also a really bad metric in the sense that sometimes people who aren't very productive or efficient have to hang around a really
2: long time. Oh, I've complained about that for years. You're telling me. I mean, yeah, we, hey, here, here, here's the preface it.
1: here, too. Wheeler's always at the office. That, that, that's the thing, Professor. You, you don't know that he didn't disclose Funny in the conversation thing is, here. All
2: that FaceTime did me no good <laughs> in my career, obviously.
1: <laughs> uh, well, here, here's my last question, Professor. Uh, at, at the end of the day, what do you think Texas and what does the workplace look like 10 years from now as all this continues to unfold?
3: I think that what's going to happen in the next 10 years is that we're going to see a real reckoning with worker discontent over the past 30 years. And so the, I, I like to tell people that the dam has already broke, right? That people saw a future for the first time in which they weren't chained to whatever kind of labor they were doing before the pandemic. A lot of people liked their jobs. They did just didn't want to do so much of it. So I talk to people all the time who say, I love my work. I just don't want to do it 60 hours a week. And I think the pandemic gave them permission to see what life would be like if they could do that work and not do it 60 hours a week. Mm. And guess what? People really like that. Mm -hmm. And it's a much more European style of management and a style of living. And um, Americans have always thought that if they stopped for a minute, the world would collapse. And someone else would get the job and someone else would get the nice house. And some, you know, there was just a metric of success in which competition was ferocious and you always had to be uh, at the top of your game. And I think people are seeing that they can be at the top of their game at less than 60 hours a week, (laughs) but they can be at the top of their game and still spend time with their partner and their uh, community and their children and other people's children And um, it's like so many things in labor. If you look at just sort of the history of labor regulation and labor rights, what you can see is that it's hard to win concessions. But once they've been won, it's extremely difficult to take them away. And I think that's what's going on right now. People have gotten a taste of something they like better, and it's going to be hard to take it away. So if you think about... um, the history of European politics in particular, even during recessions, you try to touch that paid vacation, Ooh, you'll get voted mm-hmm. out of office, right? Mm-hmm. You try to touch those unemployment benefits. Ooh, well, that's the death now. Here, we only have one program that's like that. I call it the golden calf, and that's Social Security. Uh, mm-hmm. But trust me, you try to touch Social Security in this country and- right. uh,
2: Yeah, I I was going to I was going to ask you is that was that required? Was that needed here, especially in a place like Texas, where, you know, it's always been known as a right to work state. It's always been, you know, labor doesn't necessarily have as much of a voice as business. Did we was this the only way we were going to get this kind of flexibility and, you know, salary bumps and all of that kind of thing? Was was this the only way?
3: I think so, and I, and I don't want this to be mistaken for anti-immigrant sentiment because it's not at all. I'm very, very much pro-immigration, but it's very difficult to set labor standards when you have a constant, very large influx of yeah. new, mostly unskilled workers. And so what happened is that we had this real bifurcation between skilled and unskilled workers, and people at the top have done very well, you know, managers and people in finance. It's not everybody who's an employee who's seen, you know, bad luck this past 30 years. But for people who have been subject to that kind of increased um, global competition and increased labor competition here in the United States, it's not been a pretty picture. And a lot of Americans feel like they're losing a middle-class way of life, right? A lot of the economic disgruntlement on both sides comes from this feeling that their parents had it easier than they did. And I think a lot of that is turned into this general malaise, but it, it shouldn't be a general malaise. The economy is not fundamentally bad or unsound or not productive, not producing profits. We're still arguing about how those profits should be distributed. And this is going to be a corrective. It's going to give labor a little bit more of the fruits of that. And it's going to give stockholders a little bit less. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're a laborer and a stockholder, you have a 401k, it's kind of like, hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're wow. you're you're fighting your your present against your future, if you <laughs> if you want to think of it that way. Um, Seems like
2: I'm always doing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: but from my point of view, I'll just tell you guys now. Um, I would have much rather had the money in the present than have it in future in retirement. I think about that yeah. all the time, um, especially for professional workers. The sure ladling on of benefits at the end of life is just not useful. People need that when they are younger, when they're trying to buy a house, when they're trying to have a family send their kids to college, that's when they need that income. So kind of like downloading it all to retirement ages just results in people constantly asking their parents and grandparents for money.
2: That's true. (laughs) So so these salary bumps we've seen have uh, definitely been helpful. Uh, Professor Glass, thank you for taking the time here. It's, It's like you've been preaching with some of this stuff and I'm sitting up here in the front pew just nodding my head, you know. <laughs> uh yeah, it's uh this is a really good talk and I think a lot of people Sorry, are experiencing I didn't, I didn't at least some of these things that... right now. No, oh, no, no, no. It was it was, it was a good preaching. Yeah. It was, okay. you know, when you start when you started talking about not wanting to, you know, put in sixty hours at work anymore, I was just it almost broke my neck, you know. Yeah, like, Wheeler yes. you know, was
1: mouthing some amens there too, you couldn't tell. I, I, I yeah, may have yeah, been absolutely. some
2: hallelujahs in there. Well
3: I think it's it's useful though for managers to hear this because one of the messages that workers are giving is that we love our jobs. We yes. want to help you. We, we don't want to be bad workers. We don't want to, you know, sure. We just don't want to do this for 60 hours a week. And we think. Yes, I meant to say all working. of that.
2: <laughs> yes, I meant to say all of that. Thank you for filling in the rest.
3: Nancy Fulbray is this. She's one of these MacArthur genius economists. Um, she's retired now, but. She wrote a book that is one of my favorite books that illustrates a lot of these, you know, very, very important points. And one of the things she did is she reviewed the productivity literature and she says that almost all the productivity literature says that people are good for about six hours a day, Hmm. whether it's heavy labor or heavy cognitive thinking, they're good for about six hours a day. And after that, they just start to drag and they just don't get as much Hmm. done. And she also said that it's ironic that if you go to hunter-gatherer societies, they work about six hours a day. Mm-hmm. I just find it fascinating. It that takes is. about six hours a day in a tribal culture that lives off the land to get your food, clothing, and, and shelter needs met.
1: That's about five and more hours than to- Wheeler works, but uh, still, I can understand why
2: people. <laughs> we're,
3: do that. we're built to lay around, you know. The other eighteen hours a day, sleep hang yes. with our family. We are
2: we are certainly built to laze around for most of the day. I totally That's agree right. with that.
3: That's right. Professor
2: Glass, thank you for, for taking the time and, and making us smarter here. Really appreciate <laughs> it.
3: Well, you made me smarter too, so I hope I gave you some useful tidbits. Uh,
1: there was a lot of useful stuff, and you know what was interesting is is that she's on the outside looking at this stuff, but she has a lot more data than, than just you and I looking at whether we're going to go back to office, what our boss is going to require, et cetera. I, I, I think the hybrid model is going to be the big change that comes out of this Um uh, this pandemic that we that we're all still going
2: through, yeah, uh, i and I wonder you know how much of that we're really going to see as time goes by and things get quote unquote uh, back to normal again. Um you know, I think employers are like bending over backwards right now, trying to accommodate and be really nice because they need the people, and you know a lot of workers kind of have the upper hand right now. How does that really work out though, when you know things shift and it goes back to the typical paradigm where The employer has more of the control, you know, is it going to be, hey, everybody get back in here. I want to see you. I want to be able to watch what you're doing. You know, I'm real curious. Yeah, but I don't think that's
1: coming anytime soon. I I just I I
2: I don't think it is either, although I think I think it is more than most people think it is, you know, Uh, like I'm just. I, I, I talked about it last week with our guest as like I, I, I view it as like the empire strikes back, you know what I mean? Like it's there's got to be a point where they're going to go. uh-uh, We've got the control again now and you're going to do as we say. It'll just depend on how entrenched this gets and how much money I think companies can keep making with you know flexibility and then flexibility will be okay
1: well as a calm rational logical individual like yourself wheeler how are you going to react to that when um the the uh the boss says that to you
2: here are you kidding i mean i'm practically chained to my desk as it is you i really didn't are. i didn't get this i didn't get this pass like you and so many others got so uh, you should believe you, me you should negotiate that got, next time I mean, I've got like a red spot on the back of my neck, and that's from their thumb on me constantly. So I, I've lived it. This has been my lived experience all the way through the pandemic.
1: Well, speaking of red, I, I've been nursing this elf's blood through the entire podcast here. <laughs> my goodness, how are you holding up? I mean, at, at, at points like my my eyes are watering. Uh, it is sour. Uh, a lot of raspberries, and maybe I should have saved it for later in the week. Uh, you know, when it's ice cold outside, because I'm sure it's going to be one of those. Um,
2: uh, you know. Cold-weather beers, but my goodness, it is it's sour. Well, let's hope that uh, as you're enjoying whatever it is this week and it's super cold outside, it's not also super cold inside. We shall see if the grid holds up this Woo. time around. It's going to be a different scenario than what we experienced last year, so it is. hopefully it does, but we'll see. Yeah, and you not, know, not we, sure.
1: we all went through this. Remember 2011 in, in North Texas, at least? Yeah. Um, it, it was the ice storm, and and that's what I think we're getting uh, – we're a lot more in, in the target across Harris for is ice. And when yeah. ice falls on trees and tree limbs break off uh, and fall on power lines, that's when things will start, uh, uh, start happening.
0: I hope well, that uh, doesn't happen.
1: Encore has, <laughs> in North Texas has done a good job of, of trimming trees. I mean, they, they slaughtered some of them, but if that's what it takes to keep the lights on when it's 17 degrees outside, I'm fine with that.
2: Well, you know, wherever you are uh, in the great state of Texas, we are hoping that you stay warm and stay safe uh, in these days ahead. And uh, we'll have another episode for you next week. And you can bet that uh, it will be about the power grid and the politics of that if uh, something does go wrong with that, because that would be a, a tremendous story. Uh, but at any rate, uh, stay safe, stay warm. We'll see you again next week.